WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. In today's episode, we'll be discussing forensic anthropology. This is a study of the human skeleton so that people can understand what happens whenever someone has passed away and no information, such as their age and ancestry. We'll be talking to Amber, Michaela, and Kelly. Ladies, can you please introduce yourself to us? Hi, my name is Amber Plemons. I am currently in my fourth year in the biological anthropology program. My name is Michaela Spiros. I am in my second year of the biological anthropology program. Hi, I'm Kelly Kamnakar. I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate in the Biological Anthropology Program. Thanks for joining us today. You're actually going to be the first people that we've had on the show that studied biological anthropology. Could you give our listeners a brief overview of what biological anthropology is and why it's important? As forensic anthropologists, we try to use the biology of an individual, specifically their bones, to predict their social identity. But that's why it's extremely important to continue our research with an anthropological outlook. We have to pair science with what we know culturally, that sociological constructs can be embodied by individuals due to strong systemic influences in America to help inform our reporting. I think it's important to note that our lab at large is trying to eliminate antiquated ideas that biology equals culture. This is Kelly. Forensic anthropologists usually assist with law enforcement to help identify unknown skeletal remains. Sometimes we're asked to do trauma analysis as well if somebody maybe was shot or they were found in the woods with some broken bones. We can help assist and try to identify maybe what could potentially have happened. We're also called a lot to identify some taponomic indicators, which basically means anything that's happened to the body after death, maybe how long a person has been dead if they were found outside, different things like that. I love how you're using science to investigate culture and societal standards, but also to say that biology is not equal to culture. People have biological diversity. People all across the world may not have the same type of skeletal remains, and it could change across civilizations and over the years. What are you using to estimate the forensic parameters of these skeletal remains? This is Kelly. Forensic anthropology in general, our goal is to estimate demographic parameters from the human skeleton. The parameters that we estimate are stature, sex, age, and ancestry. Ancestry focuses on the geographic origin of individuals, and we want to make it very clear that this is not the same thing as social race. So when we're looking at biological age, we're using that to estimate chronological age, which is basically how many years, months, days somebody has been alive. And one example that I can use is looking at dentition or the teeth. And in children, you have deciduous teeth right away, and those are replaced by permanent teeth. So looking at the growth of the deciduous and permanent teeth and the timing of that development is really useful for age estimation in children because teeth are highly regulated by genetics and their appearance and development is on a pretty patterned and strict time. And once you finish growing, you start degenerating probably about late 20s. So age estimation ranges for adults are a little more unpredictable just because the patterns aren't as strongly regulated as they are for growth and development in children. It's very different. We will explain more about ancestry when we talk about each of our individual research projects. Thanks for explaining that, Kelly. 
What you're saying reminds me a lot about how whenever you watch like CSI Miami, investigators use dental records all the time to verify the identities of victims that were in homicides. However, you've mentioned that your research is focused on ancestry. Could each of you give us an idea of how you use the ancestry parameter in each of your research projects? Hi, this is Amber. I focus on estimating ancestry and the human skull using craniomorphological features. My research specifically focuses on building a mixed model combining cranial morphological traits with genetic and climate information. Essentially what morphology means is just shape of the skull. We use different variations of features on the nose to try to determine where someone's from geographically because we know that the nose responds very specifically to the environment because it's directly interacting with climate. When you're inhaling moisture or inhaling air into your nose, the air has to have time to cool or become moist before it reaches your lungs so your lungs don't become damaged. So what I'm trying to do is measure the influence of genetics and environment on all of these different cranial morphological features that we use to estimate ancestry and skeletal remains. This is Kelly. My research aims to estimate ancestry on a more refined level. Traditional models of ancestry placed everyone into one of three very broad groupings, which we know that we can move past. So people were either defined as coming from Europe, Asia, or Africa. I'm looking at people considered Hispanic, which according to a lot of the government documentation, Hispanic means anyone coming from Mexico, Central America, and all of South America, including Spain and Portugal, which for identification purposes is not really informative. And it's based on Spanish, which is kind of a colonizer language. I want to see if human variation exists within these groups based on different environments, different cultural interactions, different migration movement patterns, which are bringing in different genetic information to these areas. And I plan to use this information along the U.S.-Mexico border to help identify people who are coming across the border and dying along the journey. Hi, this is Michaela. My research is focusing also on estimating ancestry in these statistical frameworks. We're obtaining these estimated percentages of where a person's ancestors came from, but currently forensic anthropologists do not know how to estimate ancestry in children, and we do not know at what age these ancestry methods become accurate. So my dissertation research will explore the growth and development of the human skeleton, and I'll specifically focus on the postcranial skeleton, which is all the bones below the skull. My goal is to see if morphology, which is the shape of the different bones in this region specifically, varies in a predictable pattern across different cultures and age groups to see if these postcranial variations can be used to help further estimate ancestry in unknown children and adults. Thanks for that explanation. From what I'm gathering, you all are focused on ancestry with forensic anthropology in some sort of aspect. Amber, you were discussing cranial morphology and like how the nose can respond to environment. And Kelly, you were discussing how ancestry can be refined, but how traditional ancestry is only for Europe, Asia, and Africa, and you're trying to expand it to the Hispanic population. And Michaela, you're investigating ancestry in a statistical framework within children, within growth and development. I think it's easy to say that these are all extremely complicated fields that are continuously developing today. Amber, can you tell us about what you plan to do with your research and what your goals are for your dissertation? 
Historically, cranial morphology has sort of a dark history. A lot of people used to use cranial morphology to create these discrete groups. They had different names for them, which I don't want to use here because I don't want to continue that pattern and I don't want to encourage that tradition. They would use these to create discrete boundaries. And what I want to do is use this research to understand how humans are just one species And we can see all of these traits within all of the populations across the world. It just occurs at different frequencies because of the gene flow that the population experienced and the environment that they were living in. The nose is shaped, like I said, by the environment, by the air that you're breathing. And that's not to say that that's related to one specific population. You're going to see that in various populations around the world because they have been in similar environments. So one of my goals is to educate youth and to use this as a way to do public outreach, to go to public schools. And also I've started creating a website that will be used in like introduction courses and universities to help people understand that we're all just one race and we can't define specific groups within humans. I was building this website as part of my fellowship with the Cultural Heritage Informatics Program on campus, the CHI Fellowship, and that's a place where they teach people in social sciences and history how to give their research a public face. I'm still gathering data, so I don't have the website complete yet, but it will come out whenever I finish my dissertation. That sounds great, Amber. Good luck with creating the website. To focus on your research, though, how are you gathering this data? Are you going around the world to like excavation sites or something, or does your lab already have this data provided for you? My advisor, Dr. Hefner, has been creating a database for quite some time of craniomorphological features from around the world. And we currently have over 8,000 individuals in our databank. Myself, Kelly, and Michaela have all helped collect data for that databank. And I'll combine the morphological data with genetic and climate data. The climate data I'll be gathering off the NOAA website, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Association website, and microsatellite data, which I'll be gathering from the Rosenberg Lab at Stanford, which is all available online. I think it's great that there's all of this data that's already available for you to analyze, Amber, but I can't help but wonder, what on earth is a microsatellite? Microsatellite data is essentially just repeated sequences of DNA. Because microsatellite DNA has a high rate of mutation, it's highly genetic. So we can easily see which groups are related. And because of this high mutation rate, this is typically the portions of DNA that they'll use in paternity testing. So it's really good at measuring genomic differences between population groups. Thanks all for explaining that, Amber. I really appreciate you making the connection between microsatellite data and paternity testing. The way how you say that it's repeated sequences of the genome reminds me of PCR, which we just had an episode about that, about how you can get pieces of the DNA and replicate it over and over to amplify it. And then in your situation, it sounds like you can find the comparisons for the paternity testing. Michaela, are you too using microsatellite data? I am not using microsatellite data. I am looking specifically at the postcranial skeleton, so all of the bones below the skull. I am going to different collections on a global scale to look at adult and juvenile individuals and 
collect these morphological changes in each collection, similar to what Dr. Hefner has done with the cranial skeleton. I actually am planning to go to the museums myself. I've collected some data from the University of Tennessee at their Bass Collection, and I've also collected data at the Terry Collection in Washington, D.C. My goal, though, is to look at this on a broad spectrum, so looking at global variations. There are collections in Portugal, in Italy, in Thailand that I want to really focus on to get that broader aspect of the different variations. It sounds like it's a lot of fun having the opportunity to go to check out these different museums and collect the samples from them to understand what these differences are between juvenile and adult postcranium bones. Are there any major differences between the two at all? Yes, we know that there are differences between juveniles and adults because that's one of the ways that we can estimate age. We can see how these bones grow and develop in utero and then when they're in childhood as well. So right now for ancestry estimation, the traits that we look at have not been thoroughly examined for different ages. So that is my goal, is to figure out if there needs to be a different method for juvenile individuals and if it can be done yeah, Michaela, because whenever I think about this, I think about how scientifically speaking, the brain is growing and developing and there's studies that actually show how the brain changes. But also we even know that whenever someone is born, they're born with more bones than whenever they're an adult because the bones can fuse and that they can change over time. So I would imagine that there'd be a difference with the postcranium skeletal forensics. While we're on the topic of cranial forensics, Kelly, can you describe a little bit more about specifically the Hispanic culture and if you've discovered any differences with Hispanic cranial morphology versus other types of cultures? What I'm looking at is trying to narrow things down past Hispanic. When we think of people coming across the U.S.-Mexico border, there are people coming from different parts of Mexico. There are people coming from Central America. But when they end up on the border and they die in the U.S., it's really hard with the methods that we have available now to figure out exactly what country or what region they may be coming from. So they're broadly grouped as Hispanic. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. A lot of other studies have used different aspects of the cranium, such as metric measurements, which are numerical measurements between different points on the cranium. A few studies have used morphology in the cranium, kind of what Amber and Michaela were talking about, the different shape changes on specific areas to understand if there are differences and a lot of studies have found that different groups in Latin America as a whole are different from other groups in Latin America. Notably, Dr. Kate Spradley and Dr. Ann Ross have done several studies comparing different groups across regions, noting that there may have been more genetic influence from groups in Africa around the Caribbean as slaves were brought to the area by European colonists. So I specifically am looking at crania and skeletal remains that are in Guatemala City, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Merida, Mexico, which is in the Yucatan Peninsula, to see if there are differences between those groups. Thanks for that clarification, Kelly. You had said that you were going to be working in these different cities in Latin America to study the craniums of the skeletal remains that you would be provided. And then the idea is to gain information in order to be able to identify where immigrants are coming from whenever they cross from the Mexican-U.S. border. How are you studying the cranium and why is it important to be able to start to identify where these individual groups are coming from? 
That's a great question. I'm looking at some samples in Latin America of contemporary individuals, which hasn't really been looked at before. A lot of the data comes from prehistoric samples or historic samples, which doesn't really accurately represent modern people who are living and moving across the border today. I aim to help with identification efforts because right now, when migrants die along the U.S.-Mexico border, they are broadly classified as Hispanic, and that's really uninformative for getting people back to their families and loved ones. So narrowing that down to a country or a region will be um, helpful in the identification process. Another thing that it could help with is being able to pick off where DNA is not allowed to kind of get some of those answers. So a lot of families who are missing migrants are not able to access United States data banks because they're not citizens. Furthermore, their samples aren't included in data banks if they decide to give them. And maybe if family members are living in the U.S. and they're undocumented and looking for their loved one, they don't want to give a DNA sample to the U.S. government without knowing how it's going to be used or what it's going to be used for. So using different craniometric methods and macromorphoscopic methods, which are morphology or shape methods, we can kind of aim to move past Hispanic and move towards identification on a more regional or localized level. It's really sad to me that some of these families can't locate their loved ones because there is improper identification of their remains. Whenever you mention these different craniometric methods, what type of methods are you all specifically using? Can you possibly scan a skeletal remain and then analyze it after and use like imaging techniques and things like that? What I do specifically is all of the analysis that I do is non-destructive, meaning I'm not destroying any bone in the process of collecting data, but I collect metric data using a machine called the digitizer, which kind of looks like a pen attached to an arm attached to a computer. And what that does is it collects 3D coordinate data or point data. So it's collecting um, data on an XYZ coordinate and putting it into a program. And that program then calculates the distance between points. I'm sure the curators appreciate your use of non-destructive methods so that way the specimens can be preserved. The digitizer that you mentioned reminds me a lot of a 3D scanner that can be used to then create three-dimensional models, like how they do in 3D printing, for example. Finally, as we reach the end of this interview, is there anything else that you would like to emphasize for our audience? One thing that we do want to make very clear is that while we're trying to educate the public that biological race is not real and that race is a social construct, social race is a very real thing and we don't want to disregard people's personal experiences. We want to make that very clear, that social race is very real and that The dark history that I was talking about has had a very direct impact on society today and created systematic injustices. Thanks for adding that in, Amber. I really do think it is important that we do discuss social race and that people understand that there's more than the systemic constructs that have been created by society. Like Kelly was saying, normally people are just categorized by Europe, Asia, and Africa, but someone can be from so many different places. And it's more than just where someone is from. It can also be of who they identify as, like who they are as a person and gender. And there are so many different ways that we can go from that. But this is really important, even like what Michaela was saying from juvenile versus adult data, because coming from different geographical regions could even affect that as well. And I really do appreciate you all taking the time to talk to us about how complex biological forensic anthropology can be. Thank you. Thank you. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes for Impact 89FM. 
Thank you to our news director, Sophie Sagan, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandron, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. This show, as well as the entire Impact 89FM podcast lineup, can be found online at impact89fm.org or by searching for The Sci-Files on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on The Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at sci-files at impact89fm.org. See you next week on Sci-Files. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.